next week yes in uh, eight days yeah yes yeah it's a heavy time very heavy time uh, I feel the heaviness all the time mm. I'll miss the people here yeah. so much made made very good friends um, the church has a big impact on me mm-hmm. and, uh, serving and preaching and teaching create um, create a bond with the people Yeah, indescribable. Mm. When uh, when you teach and preach to them, it's not just you're uh, giving a lecture. You're, in one way or another, you're connected with them spiritually. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a very good flavor of uh, what Paul has been saying in his epistles, his love for the church as he uh, remembers them and, And think of them, and even feels feels bad when, um, or feels not not bad. He would feel hurt when uh, when he's leaving. I I I have Acts twenty all the time in my hand mm. when he met the elders in of um, of Ephesus, the church. Here, move this Ephesus. mic closer. And uh, and how he was talking to them, and at the end of the chapter. They were crying because they were not going to see each other again. I may mm. not see some of the people that that I have seen here again. Who knows? Some of them may come to Egypt. I may come again. It's not clear yet. Uh, but it's it's heavy that you will not see these people, these friends again, mm. at least at this side of eternity. Yeah. So it's heavy. Yeah. It's uh, uh, something in you is, is hurt. But at the same time, I'm happy that I will see my uh, my friends, my church back in Egypt, my family. So as people say, it's a, it's bittersweet, but this time it's really heavy for me to leave. This time, oh yeah, more than the first time. Yes. Remind me again the the break you had. Uh, I came 2016 and yeah. 17, year and a half, and then I left 17 till. The beginning of um, 21, I came back in February 2021. Okay. And now it has been little over two years, two years and four months maybe. doesn't sound like a huge amount of time, but the difference, what, well, what was the main difference between this past two and a half years and when you were previously out here? I think has it been what you just talked about, that involvement in the church? I think the, the involvement in the church yeah. has... has um, has been huge involvement in the church being um, very active in the ministry in the church it, it brings you more closer to the people hmm. so it, and, and for me it's always doesn't seem right when people go to the church just I'll go and listen to the sermon and then leave and then see you next week the church is more than that it's a family and when you build relationships when you talk to the people when you when you meet them quite often when you talk about their Their life and they know about your life when you pray for them and they pray for you when you pray with each other it's family mm-hmm. in fact I always say the church family is an eternal family some some of your even your physical family will not be with you forever but the church family would, would be with you forever uh, so moving away from this family is hurting mm. right mm. so 
Are you consoled at all by the fact that there's another church family or church families waiting for you in Egypt? Not just those you know, like your immediate family and the church family, but those who who are God has yet to bring to your church, to your circle of influence. Yes, this is a great consolation, in fact. Uh, But it's, you say that, but there's, there's an unknown to it, right? Like it's not tangible. You can't. Of course, but you are expecting it. You have tasted it. The Lord made you taste it here. And uh, it was it was hurting when I left them in 2021. There were tears as well that I'm leaving for mm-hmm. a few years. But I knew, humanly speaking, that I'm coming back. A year and a half, two years. I'm coming back. I'll see you in two years. From this side, it's maybe harder mm. because... I, I, I don't expect that I would come back to stay for six months or a year or two years like I've done this time. I don't see this coming. Uh, I may come for a visit to see them. Uh, but it's, as you said, it's there's a consolation, there's comfort that you're going back to the church family as well. And you think of what the Lord has done with you here and uh, that has been leading you through the way. Mm. So I'm expecting this when I go back. As well, I'm expecting that the Lord will lead and will provide um, friendships and, and brotherhood and ministry. Hmm. Has anyone done a theology of longing, in the in the sense of we we get to experience? I shouldn't say we get to. We must, as as human beings in this world, and, and specifically Christians, experience. Um, Longing in the sense of like you're going through living in one place and then not knowing when you'll return or when others will come out to visit, whatever it is. Um, and, and, but, uh, but transposing that onto this kind of greater uh, motif of hope, right? So we're awaiting the return of our Lord and just like with you, you don't, you're not able to look back. You're not able to look forward uh, to this consolation you talk about in the same way that you can look back to the memories you've made over the past two and a half years. So in the same way, we can anticipate the return of the Lord, but not in the same way that we can, in our heads at least, experience memory. We have no memory of that. It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened yet, yes. But we have a strong hope of it. Do the Puritans write it all about? I know they write a lot about hope and anticipation of the Lord's return and the motivation that that brings in our Christian life. Yes. Especially in the realm of, say, sanctification. But um, Uh, has anyone worked? I'm just throwing the question out there. A theology of longing. Yes, I, I can't think of a Puritan... I'm sure that they have read about that, but I'm, I'm thinking of um, of the book of Romans, and uh, especially Romans 8, mm-hmm. that there is a hope that we are waiting for. Yeah. And uh, it is not seen yet, because if it, is, if it is seen, then it is not hope, right? But we are sure of it because of God's promise, because of the earnest of the Spirit, because of what we have tasted here. We have a foretaste of what it will look like. So the... 
when I think of the sweetness of the fellowship, the sweetness of even the encounter with the Lord, when you taste um, the sweetness of the fellowship with the Lord, yet you are still struggling with your sin, or you are, um, you are being hurt by being separated from the loved ones, whether through traveling or through death. Think of a friend or, uh, or someone in the ministry that you would lose because of a, a sickness. I had, I had some friends in Egypt, some, some friends we used to serve together, to travel, to minister together, and they died while I'm here in the last two years mm. because of COVID. And it's very heartbreaking that I'm going back and I'll not see them for some years, right? Till the Lord comes again or till we go to him. Mm. It's, it's hurting, but you have the hope I will see him once again. It's a see you later. It's not like goodbye and that's it. So I, I think the, the theology of the new heaven and new earth, the, the theology of the eschatology. Yeah. I think it's sometimes I think how people can live without that. Mm-hmm. How can you deal with the, with the pain and suffering of losing people, loved ones, a spouse or a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a friend? And think of the child, people who, who have labored together for the, for the sake of the gospel and one continues and one sleeps, like what the scripture says. Uh, our hope is that one day there will not be separation. Mm. Nothing will separate us. Mm. From, from God, and nothing will separate us from each other. We will gather again together uh, where it will be God will be with his people. Mm. I shall be their God and they shall be my people. I, I think going through these experiences of being hurt, the pain of, of moving, leaving people, I think this increases our longing that this is not the perfect world. There will not be. There will no. Uh, there will. There will be no pain, no suffering. God will wipe every tear from our eyes one day, right? Uh, so, I'm, uh, this increases my my longing to the new heaven and new earth. Mm. Yes. What is it about the sweetness of the fellowship you've experienced the last few years that um, is making it harder? Des- I mean, describe that because. I, I have a feeling that not every Christian has experienced what you're calling the sweetness of Christian fellowship in the same way or to the same degree. And perhaps, as you said, or intuited, I guess, is that as someone involved in Christian leadership, there's kind of almost a greater level of that in a way. Because as you said, there's, there's, you don't just show up on Sunday and then you go home, but this is this is the thing you are doing and thinking of all the time. Um, what does it look like, that sweetness you're talking about? Um, I think sharing your thoughts, your challenges, your joys with another fellow Christian who understands what, what do you mean by what you're saying? He has been through what you have, have been through, or he can he can relate to what you are saying. Even sharing these things mm-hmm. and listening to him from the other side. This fellowship is sweet. You know, think of the closest the closest relationship between any two human beings, a man and his wife. 
for them to be together. It's sweet. It's deep love between them, right? And I think on a different level, this can be this is between also the the members of the church, the the brothers and sisters in the church. Um, I was just preaching from Ephesians chapter six, the the last part of it, and Paul, after talking about the, putting on the whole armor of God, he he's saying we pray. You put the armor praying. And um, um, praying for all the saints, praying with all perseverance and supplication. And then he say, pray also for me. And as you read this text, you, you feel the sweetness. He's, he's saying, pray for me. And he has a special request that utterance may be given unto me to speak the word or uh, to bring out the, the mystery of the gospel boldly. And then he's saying, I'm sending you someone, Tychicus, who will tell you all my affairs. And what I'm doing. And you ask, why would you do this? Mm. And he said, so that your hearts may be comforted. I'm sending him to you. He will share to you what I'm, what I'm going through. And he was in prison. He was in prison writing these things. Uh, what I'm doing, what, what are my affairs? And I, I, I'm imagining Paul writing this. He is, he's enjoying the sweetness of the Christian fellowship. And he's doing this because he knows that this will comfort their heart as well. So uh, sharing our challenges, sharing our joys, uh, asking for prayer for each other, uh, pouring our hearts before each other and before the Lord, uh, nothing like that. Yes. It's Psalm 133, right? How sweet yeah. it is for the brother to be together. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're painting a picture that's very relational but intimate. Um, it's so easy. I mean, I, I'm saying this cause I'm guilty of it myself, but at times to think of church in uh, relative to what the world has to offer as this oftentimes quite stale, repetitive context where, Oh, there's another potluck or, uh, the building can be quite drab and there's the chaos of getting ready on a Sunday morning with kids in tow. And it becomes more, more onerous than, than joyful. And so it's why I asked you that, like, what is the sweetness? Yes. And, and if you had, if you had a church member come to you and say, I don't, I don't know this sweetness you're talking about. Like, how do I, how do I cultivate that? How do I, start doing that just as an individual in my relationships with others at church. And before you answer that, because there's a, the way you described it is that there's um, a quite dramatic, uh, quite dramatic phenomenon. You're, you're lifting or unveiling the facade. Like you have to be real. You, or it's not, yes. or it's not Christian you can, you fellowship. Can, yes, you can be artificial. You you can be uh, shallow. So it's very hard for people to do that because on the on the one hand, if you're the one pursuing authenticity, you you're setting yourself out there to get um, hurt. Yes, and other things as well. Yes, right. Especially oh, yeah. considering maybe the things you're struggling with. Yes, it could set you up for. Um, embarrassment 
Sometimes. Shame. Yes. And then on the other side, the person that's listening to you, um, it's, 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 in a way, it's like, how are they going to respond? What if they feel like they're being imposed upon and, uh, you know, just keep it light, man. You know, don't, they don't want to go heavy. They don't want to go deep. Yes. Or you encounter the church person who has a solution for all and every uh, I have an answer. Problem. <laughs> mm. Or it's the... This is what you should do. Yeah. Here, oh, yeah. Let me tell you what you should do. Or it's the person who's like, they're listening, but kind of. And it's like, well, let's pray. Pray and done. Pray and done. You know? So I guess what I'm trying to get at is... And by the way, I've experienced all these things. Mm, mm in church settings. And I've been all of those people as well at various times as a Christian now for however many years. But, um, that's why this sweetness that you describe is, is, uh, it's very appealing. And yet there's a part of me that thinks, oh, you know, a lot of us aren't ready for that. Mm-hmm. It, it comes with a price, especially because we're being conditioned on social media to, this is, this is function disastrous. and relate to each other in a certain way. Yes. Yes. And then you get face-to-face like I am with you right now. It's different, right? It's very, very so different. We have been talking on, on social media to arrange yeah. this. It's different from what we are doing right now, right? Totally different. Yeah, I don't have to use punctuation. <laughs> yes, yes, I can look to you. I can hear to the tone of your voice, and I understand. That's why, before I answer your question, I always say in order to fix, let's say, conflicts in the church, or if you want to clarify things, don't use an email. Don't use a WhatsApp message, messages. Don't, don't do this. Talk. At least talk on the phone. At least. And preferably meet the person. Hmm. Meet the person. Um, but as you said, it comes with a price. If you want the sweetness of fellowship, you have in one sense to be vulnerable. To Again, I will go to the marriage illustration. You can't enjoy the sweetness of marriage without being vulnerable with your spouse. You can't. You just can't. Of course, on a different level in the church as well, you have to be to be intentionally relational. And this is against the tendency that I can see in the West, the individualistic mindset. It's different in Egypt. It's different. Oh, yeah. Egypt uh, relationships are very, very important and crucial. And it's it's in the DNA of the people. It's more what communal. Yes, it's it's familial. Exactly, huh. and it's it's in, and it's in the DNA of the people. I mean, if someone just comes to the church and and leaves, for, for us this is strange. Something's wrong in Egypt. In Egypt, yeah, huh. this is strange. Uh, people usually talk. So if I meet you every week, I would not. If you have a problem in your um, in your work, I would know. But of course, we need to be careful too. We. To whom are you talking to? You don't want to expose everything about your family to everyone in the church. It doesn't work this way. Uh, and so that's why you said, I can't just push it on on people and who will say, slow down. I agree. You don't put everything suddenly uh, on the table. But you test the water one step at a time. Mm. But you have to be intentional to enjoy the sweetness. And you have to be also available. That I'm not just here to get what is inside out, I'm here also to listen. Mm-hmm. Again, Paul says that we mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who are rejoicing, right? 
how can you mourn and rejoice without really knowing what's going on, without being part of it? Um, so it's uh, it has to be intentional to, to, to experience the sweetness. Otherwise, it will always be shallow, artificial, external, and that's it. And you will not be able to talk about the sweetness of, of the fellowship. Talking with people is essential. Uh, asking them uh, true questions about life, real questions about how they are doing, uh, how this is challenging, uh, what's, what makes them happy, following up, how was it? Mm. How was the doctor's visit? How was, how was the family uh, or the family visitation last week? You mentioned that you had a struggle uh, doing this. How, how did it go? And you listen to them. In fact, if the people see your interest and it's a kind of authentic interest of what they're saying, listening, it, it will be surprising how they are going to be opened and how they will ask you also other questions about yourself. And then it will grow. It doesn't grow suddenly from zero to 100, mm-hmm. but it takes time. Uh, but again, if it is not intentional, no sweetness. But I, I think this is what the church is or what the church should be. It's one body. See all, all the illustrations. It's one body. One, one member is, is suffering. All the members will, will suffer with this small member, small or big member. It's one body. They are moving together. They, they feel each other. They understand each other. Um, it's not like different stones and every stone would, would, would do its own thing. It's one building, one, one temple. It's not I am the temple. It's we are the temple, mm. right? Uh, and I, I think the, the Lord intentionally wants us to be in this fellowship among the people of God. This is his way of extending his kingdom. This is what he wants us to enjoy. And I think this is a reflection of who he is, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a reflection of who God himself is. Uh, Yeah. hmm. One sec. (laughs) Odd minute. Have you ever went back to the door of your house to make sure that you have locked it? Oh, yeah, all the time. And then I press the, the garage door close thing like <laughs> yes, and then you two times. Back, did I, I and then you the return. And I look. <laughs> That's me. Because <laughs> then you get home and it's open. And you're like, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Sometimes I go to the other street and I return. I make a U-turn. Did I close it? Yes. No, I've never done that. <laughs> I've done it twice, maybe. <laughs> Do you think that your presence, well, you and your family's presence in Heritage Reformed has... Um, I was not in Heritage. I was in Free Reformed Church. Oh, I'm sorry. No. But you've preached at Heritage. I, I preached That's Heritage. where I got it wrong. Yes. So what's the name of the church you were at again? Free Reformed Church. So do you think that your family's presence at Free Reformed had an influence in this way, being a, you know, a, a church in the West in the United States, but you're, you know, where we are very individualistic and yet here you come in with your family from a background that is much more, as we said, familial 
did you find that that you had some kind of influence in that regard on the people in that way? I hope so. I think this is a question that maybe it's you should to ask s- to the church. Yeah, I was going to say maybe it's hard for you to see. Yes, but I because I I, I was just being myself. Uh, but I think I I don't know. I I was just acting the same way that I uh, I'm acting in my church in, in many ways. And uh, I think the church should answer this question, or the people in the church may may answer this better than me because they experienced it, what it was before I came, and what what it is now, me being here. Mm. Uh, I hope so. So that, well, let's assume yes, <laughs> and that would mean that you and your family's departure is is a quite a significant loss for them. Uh, well, for that and other reasons, people expressed expressed the love to us in many ways. Yeah, they expressed the love and the longing, and um, we have heard this many times. People would say, "We wish you stay," but we understand that the Lord called you there. I've heard this endless times, and so this makes it harder, right? It's it's good that you are leaving, and the people want you to stay, rather than thank you, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, <laughs> so uh, you know, you know, because it hurts. This means it was real love. Mm-hmm. If it's not real love, it would it would not hurt. Mm-hmm. It would not hurt, but it hurts because it was real. Mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, both ways. I think it's hurting for me. I think it's hurting for them. Um, which, which, which is something that we should be thankful for. Yeah, we should thank God for this. It's because we can't love each other apart from His love to us. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. we 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 can only love because He loved us first. Yeah. Yes. So you're deep in packing and prepping and getting <sighs> oh. out of here because you only have a week to go. Yes, yes. Uh, packing is very challenging. Getting yeah. all the books and um, yeah. Yes. Are you what to get what you, to leave? Oh yeah. Yes. Are you getting there? You think? Yes, I think I'm 80% done packing. Okay. Yes. And, I'll, I'll, and this is a hard point. I think this is the, the coming point. The, the beginning of the packing is hard. The, mm-hmm. To start it is hard. And now, close to the end, it's hard because now you may decide, no, I'll take this, not that. And you keep asking yourself, can I fit this? Do I need this? And so, what about what about the like the cultural reset that needs to happen? Because you've been, I mean... You're going home in a sense, yes. and yet you've been here for two and a half years, yes. Yes. which is a long enough time, I can say from experience in England, to assimilate yes. and yes. to get comfortable in the culture and the routine and all that. Yes, and the difference between England and the States it's, is yeah. nothing, <laughs> nothing compared to the, to the difference between the States and, and the Middle East or the States and Egypt. Yeah. Uh, well... The Brits are interesting. <laughs> okay. Uh, again, uh, I assume it's still bigger. Uh, I'm giving you a hard time because I, I agree fully with what you said. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm more concerned about my children, my wife, than myself. Mm. I think uh, I, w- I will have some challenges myself, but I w- hopefully I will, I will go over it. You have your so, you have your work waiting for you. Yes, five yeah. five six days later, I'm all in, 
all in, all in. Yeah. What about Marianne, your wife? <laughs> Marianne, it's good that her family is there. Her mm -hmm. mother is five minutes walking from where we oh, live. Good. The church is five minutes walking. Uh, her sister, her brother, five minutes walking each. So this is very good. But the culture is totally different. The streets, mm. the busyness, the, mm -hmm. the noise is different. The way people interact. The way people interact, the way people look at others, the way people interfere in the, in the things of the others or mm. in the affairs of the others. Mm -hmm. Because it's relational context, people sometimes uh, interfere more than needed. Uh, or they are more curious more than they're supposed to be. And um, I think this would be intimidating for her. The last time when we went back, it was challenging for her. She she had two hard months at the beginning. Two hard months, yes. The girls last time, they were smaller. They were younger. So it was not as troubling for them. But this time, they are teenagers, 16, 15, 11, especially the 16 and 15, I think. The... Uh, it will be a, a real cultural shock mm. for them. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot. We talk a lot about it. Almost every day we talk about it. And uh, I try to help them to get it out. Uh, sometimes they bring their concerns and sometimes they, they start to think of what are the good things that they will see there. And um, they imagine certain scenarios. Maybe if it was that, it would have been be better. They are talking about it all the time. It's, it's in their mind. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Uh, seeing their friends for the last week now, it's it's heavy on them. My girls were with some friends yesterday saying final goodbyes to some some of them. And there were lots of emotions and tears. It was heavy. Uh, but again, this is this is a good sense. It means that there was real friendships. But yes, the, the, there will be huge cultural difference. Huge one. Um the good thing is our culture, family is there. We are not going to a place where there's no church or we are not joining a new church from scratch. This is our church. Mm. My children were born there. They lived there many, many years. They have friends there. They know the mm. people. Mm -hmm. Hopefully this will soften it. Yeah. Yes. Big, big time. It's not like going to a, a new country the first time and now you are establishing brand new relationships. Mm -hmm. No, it's not like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you. Um, I wanted to ask you something that's related to the work that you've done in your writing mm. and your studies at Puritan Reformed. Is in a in a real sense, you are going back to Egypt more. Well, educated, but I guess more read into the Puritans, and in particular. Uh, particular Puritan voices. Um, so if you can imagine yourself as sort of a vessel of, you know, or a container of this body of knowledge um, coming from here to go back to Egypt, what, what impact might you anticipate seeing with now being further equipped in this way, not just with a, a doctorate in general, but in particular, not just either, not just also 
Romans or the New Testament, but these particular voices from Christian history. And yeah, so what what do you hope or anticipate, or even if I'm just throwing you in the spotlight right now, and you haven't really thought about this, but I want you to think about it. I want you to think about the, the potential impact of Puritan teaching in particular upon uh, the church in Egypt. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of uh, what are some of the things that uh, I think would, would help us back in Egypt through people in, uh, from the Puritans especially. And um, the name that I that I really enjoyed so much, which I worked some time with, was um, was Walter Marshall. Mm-hmm. As you you have the book here. Yeah, I did that because I, I was reading your. Uh, this is your THM thesis. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. Um, this is for me. It, it was a life changing book. One one. You know, certain books would be life changing for you or eye opening, and this book was one of them. I've never heard of this man ever before coming to Puritan. Why did he change your life or this book change your life? Because it shows how the gospel, the gospel message, the gospel of justification and reconciliation with God, how it is central, not just when you are saved, but in every day of your life. Every day of your life. You, you, you need this gospel in every day of your life. This is, there's no sanctification. There's no growth uh, in your life. Apart from this, and apart of it, apart from this gospel, human beings and even Christians, they have one of two traps to fall in: despair or pride. And only the gospel can can save you, can spare you from that mm. Th- through your Christian life. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trap of antinomianism, the trap of legalism. Only the gospel can protect you from that. And Walter Marshall articulated these truths. For me, so clearly, so clearly, showing how the gospel is central for all your, for your life. It's not just when he talked about sanctification and justification. He was not just explaining doctrines or uh, like uh, what we call cold doctrines, mere uh, ideas, theological ideas. No, he, he was saying how this would impact your soul. Hmm. Uh, how this will lead to your despair or pride or um, how our hearts are twisted to find a back door for legalism if we are not aware if we if we don't go if we don't go back to the to the gospel um, so marshall was uh, was very helpful uh, in this in this regard and explained it clearly and uh, analyzed it clearly showing the danger the dangers uh, ex, ex, uh, even himself, he was expressing the struggles that he was going through, um, because he himself was going through such struggles uh, of legalism and antinomianism, lack of assurance, fear, um, want to do something to have this comfort in his heart, and um, and then the gospel, freedom, mm-hmm. understanding what is the gospel and how, how it is relevant to your everyday life uh, is relevant. And I think this is much needed in my context. I, I am, I'm coming from a context, the context in the Middle East is very legalistic. Mm. More than you can think of. This is cultural? It's cultural and religious. 
with when you live in and not just in Christianity. No, not only in Christianity. The majority religion there, it's it's work based. You do things to gain heaven, right? To gain paradise. You work, you work hard, you work hard. Or you do good things and you have bad things. Hopefully your good things are more than your bad things and they will cancel each other. And uh, you can only be accepted if you you reach certain level of performance. It is rooted in the heart of the people. And even not only work-based religion religions, whether Christian or non-Christian, but even among the evangelicals. And they do exactly what, what Marshall is describing here. When, when evangelicals, they are famous to say, we are justified by faith alone. All of them would say, yes, we agree. But then when, when you ask them about this faith, they would consider it the human contribution in their salvation. It's mm. my contribution. You have mm. to do something, mm. which is faith. So faith and repentance became a new law, as, as Marshall would, uh, would describe, a new law, new nomianism, new nomos, new law that's, that's coming in. And so it's the same mindset, the same legal mindset, and I call it, it is wearing a Protestant dress. But it's the same mindset, using Protestant terms. But it's the same heart that God does something, and now I have to do something. And when you put these, when you put two, these two together, you are good, you are fine, you are you are in a good place. And instead of resting in the gospel, mm. and instead of going back to the gospel, yeah. Uh, th so th this is uh, this is used. that's why I chose this this guy to to study. And uh, when I went further. To the to the PhD, that's the same issue that I I was looking into biblically. So I did it with Walter Marshall in the teaching systematically, and now, and when it came to Romans, I went to it uh, biblically. Who who introduced you to Marshall in the first place? Because <laughs> I had never heard of him either. This this was a story. I uh, I came to Puritan 2016, and I had the plan in my mind to work on this. Moralism, moralistic preaching. I have to deal with that. How to help young men to 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 fight sin? What to say? What to tell them? How to help them? Mm. And this was my question. And I knew that it's the gospel from Romans. It's the gospel is the answer. So I went to Jules Bicky in his office, and I said, "I'm here doing a teacher. Are you scared? No, no. He's he's so welcoming, so kind, and." Uh, Oh, very welcoming. It's an Man intimidating of office, though, isn't it? It is. It, the office is, I don't look around. And it's hard to, well, if <laughs> you have to look around because if you don't, you won't watch where you're stepping and you'll fall over a pile of papers. <laughs> I agree. But sometimes <laughs> I, I tried one time to look uh, on, on the books around me. Oh, that's too much. That's too much. And you, you have the envy inside. Can I have so, this amount of books one day? And I say, no, no, no chance. No, that's, a, that's a lot. And uh, it's even worse when you go to the library upstairs and you see many books there. They are his books that he contributed or donated to the library. Yeah. No. Uh, endless amount of, book, of books that he, he gave to the library. Anyways, I went to his office and I told him, look, I hope to do a PhD one day on the Book of Romans. On the issue of justification and sanctification, how do they relate? And um, my intention in the THM is to do the same topic systematically, and I would love to do one of the Puritans. And I was expecting him to tell me, John Owen, 
Richard Baxter with his problematic views of justification to deal with him. Uh, Goodwin, Flavel, one of the, those famous names. And then he, he looked at me and he listened, listened carefully and he said, Walter Marshall is your man. Hmm. Then I have never heard of the name. And then he, this is Dr. Beaky, he, he didn't just give me the name, he said, come. And then he took me to the bookstore, RHB bookstore. It was in the seminary then. Yeah. And he picked up the book and he gave it to me. This very one? Not, not the, an older um, edition of it, but okay. the, the same content. I have an older edition of it. He just walked you over there. He just walked me over there and he said, take this. Wow. And he said, this is your book. Okay, I've never heard of him. And then I start to Google Walter Marshall. Nothing about this man. He, he, there's really? no other writing except this book. You can't find anything else for this man. It's a book on justification, on sanctification, and he has one sermon written at the back of the book on justification. Of course, within the book, he will talk about justification, but he has a sermon at the end of the book on justification. Mm. And I kept thinking, why would I do a teach-em on one book? And, oh. and on someone unknown. And he's unknown. Rather than one of the, the big names. The big names. Right. So I start reading the book. And I was fascinated because as I was reading him, I said, this is kind of exactly, exactly what I'm looking for. Hmm. No, no one inch wide, left or right. It's exactly. Why? Because what was he, it in particular? Because he's talking about how can we grow in our Christian life through the gospel. This was, this was the main point, the gospel mystery of sanctification. How can we be sanctified? And he's explaining and explaining the dangers. And as he's writing about the dangers, how people would fall into despair or, um, or pride, how we, we swing between legalism and antinomianism, he's describing the situation in my context. He's describing what, what I see in Egypt. And he's, he's kind of analyzing the, the human soul, why we do what we do. Why would the gospel help you to grow? Mm. And, uh, and they said, this is fascinating, as if, this, this man is writing exactly what I'm looking for. Exactly what I'm looking for. Of course, it was challenging to work just on one book, and the secondary resources are very few. Very few. Yeah, I bet. So I'll, I'll tell you a trick that I have done to help me with that. It was not a trick. It, uh, I, I talked to Dr. Beek. I said, I will work on this guy. Would you be my supervisor? He accepted graciously. And um, I found some encouraging notes about this man i think it may be written on the back of this virgin that it has been said that john murray said this is the most important book on sanctification ever written in church history and i loved john murray i still love john murray and for him to say this this was huge mm -hmm. but most of the resources that i found about this book are introductions some people intro introducing the books or a letter old old letter from uh, someone like i think john harvey uh, one page about the book one page here, one page there, introduction here, introduction to the second edition or the third edition. This was my main secondary resources. I, no, one, no one book, full book being written on him discussing his ideas. Uh, so I, th I said, this was my trick. Okay, I will work on Marshall, but I, I may need to compare him with, with someone. So I said, Marshall is coming later in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. I will compare him with the Westminster Divines. So I will see what the Westminster standards say about the relationship between justification and sanctification. 
and they'll compare her with him with John Calvin. Calvin, early on in the Reformation. I will discuss Calvin's view on how these two uh, graces relate, especially in relation to union with Christ. So this became my first chapter in the dissertation. And then my second chapter was how the Westminster standards, some of the divines wrote about that, how they thought about justification, how they thought about the active obedience of Christ, how the active obedience is related to our obedience, uh, because some, some of the divines, they denied the active obedience of Christ. And uh, anyway, I, I did the second chapter on the Westminster Sanders. And then I started to talk to, to Marshall. So this was kind of maybe two-fifths or uh, maybe one-third of my work. And then I, I said, okay, to be simple, I'll see what he says about justification. I'll see what he says on sanctification. And then I'll see how he puts them together and finally how, why this is important for the church today. What fascinates me, I think the way you structured it is is good. Uh, but what what interests me very much is what you said just a minute ago about how you, it seems like you selected not necessarily Marshall at the outset, but what Marshall was talking about, which you didn't really know. No, I had it no was idea the, about it. It was this, um, you, the way you articulated it was this kind of, the the working out of like the daily Christian life lived in the light of not just the light of but in in the reality of justification justification union with Christ yes ultimately union with yes. Christ right yes. so um, but you were specifically thinking of your own context in Egypt yes all the time that's fascinating so there there's and the reason I say that is because you weren't just thinking as I did <laughs> of some really, to me at least, it was a very interesting theological topic in my specific case of uh, comparing Paul and early Judaism. Mm, mm. Of course, there's pra practical applications I can draw from my studies, but that wasn't the impetus at the outset. For me, this was the impetus. My context was the impetus for my teaching and my PhD. And so um, do you feel like it's equipped you in the way you hoped it would? I think it does. Going back in. Now, because but you have yet to, as we say... To express it, to teach it. Well, to go into that context now and and see how this is going to land, right? Yes. Yeah. And it, it's not that I am done. I'm now done and I will start doing this in my context. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have been doing this in my context during my research. Here so, in here, the US. Here, well, because I, 2016 and 17, I started it. So I went back mm -hmm. for four years. I've been teaching on sanctification. I've been talking to young men who come. Young men would come to you. I'm struggling with sin. I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or not. Mm -hmm. How can I stop it? And then you need to talk to them. What, what, what would you say? How would you advise them? Would you, would you give them to-do lists? Would you give them a law? What would you do? Or would you just leave the whole law aside to, and become antinomian? What would you do? What, what, what would you tell them? Uh, what, what is the place of the means of grace? Why are they important? Uh, how they are related to the gospel? So I was, I was kind of practicing it with young men in preaching, in preaching in my church. A very important question in the everyday life of the church in every week. 
how can people live their Christian life in light of sin, in light of Satan, in light of the flesh, and um, and so this was the drive that pushed me. And I was while writing, while reading, interacting with the people. Now, I said, okay, I would do it in Romans as well. So that's why I, how I started my PhD to just say, okay, this is not one man called Walter Marshall who who says very nice theological ideas, which which can make sense. It's it's a coherent system. No, it's it's biblical. And here it is. This is exactly what Paul is saying. This is exactly what the New Testament is saying. And uh, it shows itself again and again and again. This is the way. This is the way. And uh, and so now it became more relevant to, to my ministry. And it's a good thing that because when you when you start to talk to this with scholars, with theological students, as you're training pastors what to do, what to preach, how to preach, how to deal with these issues, you are not just telling them personally this is how you fight sin. This is how you counsel those. Be careful not to be uh, a legalist as you're mm. teaching, or you are not teaching them legalism. Because this is what the scripture is saying. Be careful what you're teaching. And um, it's fascinating how how Marshall was affected by Thomas Goodwin. Fascinating. Because he was struggling because of Baxter. So he talks about that? He talks about that. And uh, Or people talk about that. I don't think it's in the book, but he's, he's okay. alluding to Baxter in his book without bringing his name. Baxter has a very famous... I would say terms, terminology. He would call our faith like a peppercorn. God does the majority of the work, but still we contribute with the peppercorn. Mm. Our faith is the peppercorn. And Baxter was concerned with antinomianism. Mm -hmm. So he went to the new nomianism and justification. And, and Marshall was affected by that big time. But then through his struggle, he talked with Thomas Goodwin. And Thomas Goodwin, he said, I think your main problem is that you are not depending on Christ enough. You are trying to do something instead of resting in the work of Christ. And so if you read Marshall, you'll find him referring to the peppercorn. You are not even contributing with a peppercorn for your justification. And he, he's attacking this idea. So he is criticizing Baxter without saying Baxter. And uh, again, what helped him? A teacher. So Thomas Goodwin helped him in his own life, and he helped him to teach that. So... And I hope this would be what I'm, I'm doing, that I would help the people whom I deal with personally and those whom I'm, I'm training for the ministry. Because again, as preachers and teachers, we are so tempted, we are so tempted to give the people to-do list. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is what to do. This is the what moralistic. Do. The moralistic preaching. Teaching, preaching. Yes. But... And I'm asking this question because I've I've been reading um, the whole Christ. Oh yeah, Sinclair Ferguson. Yes, it is the same. But I'm not all the way through it, so I haven't arrived. <laughs> but it's dealing with this issue of antinomianism and, and legalism, the marital controversy. Yes, yes. So, um, but here's the question then, and I'm throwing this out at you as a genuine question, but also in the sense of kind of like devil's advocate. So if we have these two extremes, let's not call them extremes. If we have these two alternate ways of um, behaving or not in, 
in living on our Christian faith. So it would be either legalistic or antinomian. So strict adherence to the rules or shedding them entirely. Those, in a sense, are, it's a, I'm doing and I'm not doing. But that, that middle ground, the right way, which we've, you've articulated as union with Christ, what is that? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, because as, as a human being, you want to know, again, what's the list? Okay. How do I know that I'm doing or not doing? How do I know that I'm, how do I know whether I am just living in union with Christ, like, versus um, wandering into legalism or antinomianism? And, and furthermore, how do I maintain that? So on a day, like yesterday, I did great. <laughs> okay. You know, well, you could tell, I'm not saying I'm saying that. Yes, I'm saying yes, you could say that. Yes, You're like, yes. Yesterday, I did great. I was un- unified with Christ. Yeah. <laughs> you see, it's hard to articulate, isn't it? I know, because it's hard to say, like, when is it that I'm doing it right? Okay. And it's easy to say, like, oh, yes. Yesterday, I was I was pretty legalistic about things, yes. you know. Or yesterday, uh, sadly, I was and I was living antinomianly, mm. whatever. Mm. Many things to be said here. First of all, it's not about what what we are doing. I think it's also about what why we are doing it. Why are you doing what you are doing? So, so we, intent. And the motives. Why right. are you doing this? Let's go back to the terms, legalism and antinomianism. It's, it's noticeable both of them are, are law-related terms, right? They have, they have to do with the law, the law of God. And simply, what is the law? It is briefed in the Ten Commandments. And I would say it's even more briefed in love your God from all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what we want to live, or this is what, what does it mean to be a human created in the image of God, to love God above all things else, and um, to love your neighbor as yourself. What is the problem of antinomianism and legalism? First of all, legalism would say, I would do these things to gain something. So if you think about it, you are not doing this because you love. In fact, it's self-love. You, want, you are loving yourself and you are making use of God and, the, and your neighbor mm-hmm. to gain something. So you are breaking the law as you're doing this. On the other hand, antinomianism, if you don't say, I'm, I'm not committed to this, you are not committed to loving God and love yourself. You are committed to love, you, uh, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So you're committed to love yourself, to be self-centered. Both of them are very self-centered. And Walter Marshall would say this. He would say, Antinomianism is a clear breaking of the law, breaking of loving God and love your neighbor. Right. It's a clear one. Mm-hmm. Legalism is a subtle way of breaking the law because he says you will, you will do it artificially, externally, not from your heart. And eventually, eventually, you'll be a hypocrite because you know in your heart that you're not obeying the law. You will show to the people from outside that you're obeying the law, but from the heart you are not. And you will... At certain point, you will reach a point that you would you will break and you will stop doing the law and you will go clearly to antinomianism 
And even if you stayed in legalism, you are breaking the law. Legalism is a subtle way of breaking the law. It's a subtle antinomianism, if you think about it. So the goal at the end of legalism and antinomianism is breaking the law, which is not loving God from all your heart mm. and not loving your neighbor as yourself. Then comes the gospel. What is the gospel? That God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to save sinners such as us. We, we see a, a tremendous love in the gospel that is, cannot be compared with anything else. And when our eyes are opened on that, we can't do anything but love God and love to obey him. Could we, I'm sorry to interrupt you, because I don't want to lose this thought. Could we say then that these alternative modes um, of the, so legalism and antinomianism is, deals with, um, we are living in relationship with ourself versus the way that God proscribes and actually facilitates by his spirit living in us is a relation is what he wants actually us to pursue and what he pursues with us fully is relationship with him. So it's a matter of relationship because I think expressing it in terms of breaking of, of well, legalistic terms, either anti or legalist, um, it, it fails to get at the fact that when we do either of those, it's ultimately, it's about um, misplaced relationship. Yes. I would say to, the, to a great extent, yes. Especially the relationship with God. Because the so, focus becomes us. Like, because, yes, I'm, am I doing, am I not doing, rather than what you said, loving. Loving. Loving God and loving my neighbor. Yeah. And so I would, I would love God and I would love my neighbor because I've been loved. I see the love of God in the gospel. And the clearest place where I see God's love is the gospel. It's not that he provides for me. This is a great act of love. But there's no greater love than that. This is what the scripture says. There is no greater love than that, that someone or a person would put his life for his beloved ones. Marshall would say, without the gospel, what is our relationship with God? He's an enemy. He's an enemy. And being an enemy, you have two options with him. Either you will run from him, curse him openly, stay away from me, I hate you, antinomianism, or you will try to obey him, legalistic. Why? Because you are afraid. He is more powerful than me. I can't stand before him. He has things that I would like to have. So I will give him, I will bribe him. I will give him what he wants to give me what I want. I don't want him. I, I want what he gives. It's like the, the two sons in Luke 15, the older and the younger son. This is, this, these are the two faces of antinomianism and legalism. But the gospel is different. The gospel, Walter Marshall would say, in the gospel, we have this news of being reconciled with God. I am the enemy became reconciled in, in Christ. Only then I can love him. Only then I can love him. And how this love will be expressed? Obedience. Obeying the law. Loving him more than anything else. Honoring him more than anything else. And loving those who are made on his image. And this is the law. This is the fulfillment of the law. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans. What, what, what Marshall is describing, Paul said, 
in Romans 8, 3 and 4, that what the law could not do being weakened by our flesh, God sent his only son, his only begotten son, and condemned our sin in his flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is the righteous requirement of the law? That we'd obey the law mm. by the Spirit. Mm. This is the goal. The goal. So salvation is a means to a goal, relational, to love God and to love my neighbor, to live together, the communion that we were talking about in the beginning, and to live with God, loving him. I'm here because I love you, not just I, I love what you give. Mm. You are more. You are my treasure. Uh, this is love. This is love. It's interesting we're having this conversation in the midst of so-called Pride Month, or I guess now it's Pride Season. Um, and the proliferation of signs throughout my neighborhood of love is love. Hmm. So meaning it's undefined yes. ultimately yes. in that context. But to hear you express it, so passionately mm. in terms of what scripture tells us, what God himself tells us love is, love is. Yes. which has, which involves these terms that would be rejected outside of a, a biblical understanding, yes. obedience, yes, authority, accountability, just, well, godly justice, yes, right? godly true justice, justice. True justice, yes. Um, there's a lot of Romans 5 coming through in what yes, you're saying. Yes, yes, a lot of Romans Absolutely. 5. Absolutely. It's all over From the place. From enemies to, to children. To children, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Having the Spirit being poured in our heart. Um, it's, we, it's completely antithetical to what is being thrust down our throats these days about love is self-love. It's love of self that is the highest form of love. This is the definition you, of selfishness. Yeah, but <laughs> and it came it just came to me as you were talking how we are we are to love God and and that's the vertical and horizontal we're to love those made in his image. Yes. But as you said that I thought, but all every human being is made in his image. Yes. So we are not just to love those who are good. Those in the church. Yeah. <laughs> or those who are righteous. Yes. I, I, again, and this brings you back to the gospel. Mm. Because right understanding of the gospel, where God loved the unlovable. God loved the unlovable. We were unlovable. We were not the good people. And that's why Christ died for us. Again, this is Romans 5. Christ died for the ungodly. He, while we were ungodly, in the right time, he died for these men. So being created in the image of God, loving your, our enemies as he loved our enemies, this means we are dealing with those who are different from us by grace. And I must confess, this is very hard. Hmm. Very hard. It's, it's very easy for us to love those who are nice, who are godly. And and not love the others or not to deal with by grace with them. And again, this is a lack of understanding of the gospel. You know, this is, we, we can easily as Christians go towards legalism as we deal with others. We want just to be very judgmental with them. And I'm not saying that we say that what you do, 
that we don't say that what they do they're wrong it's wrong it's it's a big big wrong it's wicked it's evil but would you pray for them would you think that god can change them as he has changed you mm. or not this is the power of the gospel this is what paul was preaching i'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of god unto salvation why because the wrath of god is revealed from heaven there is wrath revealed for those practicing such things but and all if there is a way out of this trap of antinomianism clear antinomianism or this selfishness if there is a way out of this it's the gospel nothing else will stop this you can restrain it for some time you can restrain so through some laws that you would impose it from outside yes you can i give that but you will not you can never eliminate it no chance only the gospel can eliminate it as as the lord has done with us hmm. and he has done with us he has done this with us graciously not because we deserve it not because there was a hope not because there was a pepper core <laughs> that we can contribute and again i'm saying this and uh, if i may say i'm preaching to myself mm-hmm. i'm weak in this regard how many times i look to those who are not doing these things who are promoting pride big names big politicians and i'm angry and sometimes i say lord we want to get rid of these men and i i know that evil is troubling to our soul but at the same time how can we be gracious with these people and even pray for their salvation and be willing to bring the gospel to them and to deal with them graciously Mm. we we can only do this as we meditate on what what does it mean that that God loved us while we were enemies and he's still dealing with us graciously every day you know uh, i'm thinking of my children sometimes you would get angry with your children because they are not obeying the law you have commandments and they are not obeying them and then you said i told you this before don't do it right don't do it and then they break it today and then tomorrow he said i told you yesterday don't do it and then they break it again and what what would we do we get angry really angry at them you did this again and we yell at them i told you not to do this and we do the same with the lord we ourselves as grown ups we break the law that he has given us so today i have disobeyed in certain regard and he has forgiven me mm. and tomorrow I find myself falling the same error again. And God is still willing to forgive me. And we even with our children, we should be gracious. Yes, we should correct them, but we should never be sick of them, right? Mm. They are our children. Mm. So I mean, he he delays his uh, his judgment, his wrath even now. I mean, I I go on to uh Twitter or various news sites and you just see the things that are happening and yeah I get angry too yes um I know it's part of the american makeup to want to like do something now about it yes whatever your political affiliation is but just that's kind of like part of the american spirit I would I would think in in Egypt too culturally you have some sense of that too yes. of like it's everywhere something is wrong we must deal with it now, now. yes 
but God isn't doing that with all these things that are happening. And on the one hand, it makes me think, why not? Like, do something, Lord, yes. for the sake of my children, for the sake of their children. Um, issues, you know, that really, really hit home, like uh, human trafficking, for example. Like, these, these really, hor- like, the most horrific things that are happening in the world today, even far beyond the extreme narcissism that we're seeing from people mm. in this whole pride thing, right? Mm. But there's other issues that... Um, Horrendous. People are being um, oppressed and uh, murdered and just abused, and it's just horrific. And you think, Lord, why aren't you doing something about this now? But... Um, yeah, it's a testament to his patience. And long-suffering. And long-suffering. And coming back to what you said before, his his love yes. for those whom he has made Yes, yes. in his image. Yes. yes. Every human being is made in his image. Yeah. I was discussing this with my children last night. We were going through... <clears throat> oh, goodness. One of the Psalms. Maybe it was Psalm 93. Anyway, it's a very short psalm. But we were talking about the name Yahweh. Because mm. uh, at our church last Sunday, someone had put up this very large mural with the Hebrew lettering Yahweh. Mm. And my kids were like, what's that? What is that? <laughs> um, not my son. My son learned the Hebrew alphabet when I was going whoa, to seminary. Yes. He, well, How old is he? Well, he's 13, but uh-huh. that was when he was four. <laughs> he's he's uh, He's autistic and... For some reason, he just, in about a day, had memorized the whole Hebrew alphabet. Whoa. It yes. took me a lot longer than a day. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he, he knows all the letters still and knew what it was. But anyway, my daughter's like, what's that? And I, so I had to explain the meaning of Yahweh the first time we see it in the Bible. But ultimately get down to that, that real meaning of um you know, who is God and who is he in relation to us? So, but coming back to that main point about relationship, right? And that, um, oh, right. So who God is. Mm. And then, so what does that imply then for the fact that we are said to be made in, in his, his image, image? Yes. and trying to kind of explore that with the kids? It was, yes. I mean, it was an interesting discussion with them. Yes. As right. you see the little brains, growing brains, try to comprehend this and, Think it out and process it. Yes. And speaking of the image of God, when you think sometimes people would say, maybe before the fall, we are in the image of God. But even after the fall, you can look at anyone, whether he's a Christian or not, and you can say he's in the image of God. Genesis 9, James 3. We are in the image of God. Even those non-Christians, they are created in the image of God. And this is that's how... They should be dealt with dignity, mm. Mm. Uh, like no other creature. You've written in, I have here your uh, THM thesis, and you've you've worked a bit in union with Christ. Yes. yes. Which is uh, just a fascinating theological concept that we... I think every Christian should contend with at some point in their mm. journey, yeah? Yes. If not daily. <laughs> <laughs> it should be, yes. But um, yes. 
should what, be daily. So what is the relationship then of of, of uh, union with Christ, that concept with the Imago Dei? Uh, well, th- this is a huge, <laughs> a huge question. Uh, you know, Athanasius used to say we are, we are created in the image of God, and what he means then by the image of God is Christ incarnate. So, as if the image of Christ incarnate is before our creation in in God's decrees. So we are created in the image of the true image of God. Athanasius said that. Yes. Oh wow! Fascinating, huh? Uh huh. It's fascinating, and and that's why that's why when Christ came, Christ came as if God is redrawing the image again according to the original image. Hmm. So as if the image was corrupted and now the the true image is coming and now we are being drawn again or made again in the true image, what is what is human. And Christ is the is the ultimate mm-hmm. image, um, image of God. And so this takes us back to union with Christ. I I am thinking of Romans 8, 28 to 30, right? About we know all things are working together for good. And what is this good? That we'll be conformed to the image, to the image of Christ. And then he talked about the, the golden chain, right? Election, or yes. knowledge, yes. justified, glorified. And these are, these are the blessings that we have from Christ, right? So mm. through union with Christ, by faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, all the works of Christ are applied in our lives, all these blessings, this golden chain. And what is the goal? That we will be conformed to the image. So the, the union with Christ begins the restoration of the image, if I may say. And the goal is that Christians would be in the same image of Christ, which means loving God from all the heart, all the mind, all the soul, all the strength, and loving my neighbor as myself. So, so we, are, we are to love God as Christ loves the Father, being empowered by Christ himself. Be, being united to, with him. To love. Yes. And love ultimately is relationship, right? Yes. To love in that same manner. Yeah. I mean, th- that type of, I mean, that type of thinking, I mean, that, it's, it, that changes your, your whole life. But I have to be honest, I don't think that way every morning when I wake up. Like my like there's just too much going on. It is. It is too much going on. But how do you cultivate that kind of a a purposeful, intentional meditation upon the the nature of Christ and our and therefore our relationship with the triune God? How do you cultivate that to be a daily I mean, wasn't it Luther himself who talked about this is that every single day we are again experiencing the um the reality of of being justified by faith yes it's not like there's this i think oftentimes i've even thought about it this you know we're saved at this point and then off we go this you get further and further away from that moment yes this is exactly why why i did what i've done what, my what my grandma used to question, yeah. um, I had this friend who was a Christian, and she used to be doubtful about that person's salvation because they couldn't pinpoint the day 
and the hour and the time that they, <laughs> that oh. they had um, given their life to Jesus. Yes, I think this is our, some taboos that people may, may fall in. Uh -huh. You never know when the Spirit will come, or um, but you'll hear his... You would hear the voice. You would see the effect of the spirit. What the spirit has done in the, in the, in the person. Uh, I know some people who had who can point to a certain day, certain point, and I know many, many other saints who can never point to a certain point. But they love Christ and they love the saints and they love the Word. But going back to your question about how do I do this, and uh, I think the best answer I can give is the means of grace means of grace. Um, prayer, reading the scripture, they are not, they are not to-do lists that you have to do this to, to become better. No, this is not what I'm saying. I'm saying in order to, to be conformed to the image of Christ, you have to see Christ. You have to encounter him. And every day we see him, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are transformed from glory to glory. And where, where can we see Christ? It's in the gospel. It's in the word. So as we pray, as we read the word, we are reading the word, we are praying so that we may see. And as that's why it's called means of grace. It, it is not grace itself. Of course, it's, it's great. Graciously, God gave us this. But these are things that we are, if I may say, using, reading to see Christ. And as we see Christ, things change. So And you don't see everything every day. He is, he is a, a fountain of blessings. Mm. So one day you see him as merciful. One day you see him as your high priest. One day you see him uh, dying for sinners. One day you, you see him, he's opposing evil. He's against evil and against hypocrisy. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating what we see in Christ every day. And as we see him, we're not watching him to, to just to, to imitate him, to be just wrong if we are just seeking to imitate him. Yet ultimately, we, this is our goal, to live as he lived. But we are watching him to see how he dealt with sinners with us, what he is doing for us in sinners, what he is doing in our life, how he is feeding our souls uh, every day as he has been doing with the disciples. I have been uh, meditating on the, on the Gospel of Mark for the last few months and... Uh, and just watching Christ dealing with uh, with the lip with the leper, dealing with someone like um, Matthew or the, the Levi, someone who is being hated by everyone, someone who's a traitor to his people, someone who's greedy. And then he would go to such a person who no one else would go to. And becoming gracious with him, dealing with him, calling him, this coming to this kind of people. He's coming to this kind of people. And when you see this, if he's coming to this kind of people, then he's coming for me. I'm a sinner. So it, I qualify, if I may say. <laughs> uh, so this, this breaks your heart. This mm. makes your heart melt. And then when you see him doing this, as you're walking through your day, in every, your everyday life, and you see someone who's greedy, who is hateful. It's very convicting just to look down to him, right? Because Christ came for these people and you call yourself Christian who wants to follow your master. 
What would you do with these people? How would you deal with these people? And again, I'm telling you something that I'm struggling with. I'm not saying I'm doing this every day. It's a struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you see the gospel afresh every day, when you see who Christ is afresh every day, it changes your perspective of everything in your life. And I would call this is transformation. You look, you see him, and by his word, through his spirit, he's changing us. And um, the, the, for me, this is the only way to, to live Christian in a, a, the Christian life. That's why if someone says, I need to live a Christian life, I say, you have to read the Bible. Not in a sense that you have to do this, to do this, to, but you have to read the Bible to see Christ. Hmm. You have to be in the church. Every, why would we go to the church every Sunday? We want to see Jesus. And that's why if the preaching does not have Jesus, does not have Christ, what would it lead to? Despair or pride? These are the two, these are the to-do lists. Follow them and you'll be fine. Or I, I'm, these, are, these are convicting. I'm not doing them. Despair. But preaching should show us Christ. Different aspects of who he is, what he has done. Mm. And this is the only way for transformation. Is this an issue in the church in Egypt? Big issue. When I say an issue, I mean the legalism, antinomianism that we've been talking about, but also just this sense on the part of uh, lay people in particular. Well, I'd include ministers too, but this sense of what do I do? What do I, what must I be doing? And I've, you've talked about the means of grace. Yes. But there's another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which I mentioned as you were leaving last time, was <laughs> talking about expository preaching. And when I say expository preaching, I I'm I think we're talking about the same thing, which would be Christ-centered preaching. And even maybe connected, well, not maybe, but connected that is let's call it triune God preaching. So preaching that is Trinitarian. Yes. Um, yes. That is addressing the full picture of, of the redemptive project yes. of Father, Son, Son Spirit. Spirit. Yes. Right? Yes. So is, as you anticipate your move back to Egypt, is this one of the main issues for you, or are there other things that are actually more kind of prescient in your mind of what you need to address or discuss or or preach or teach on once you get there? I think if I will pick two or three things, the most important thing, things that I need to do or to stress is this one. Which one? To preach Christ every, every week in the church through preaching of the scripture. So this is something lacking in the Egyptian of context? Oh, big time. I mean, it's lacking here it's too. La- to I would say honest. it's lacking everywhere because the tendency... We are legalists. We are legalists by nature. I was. I would say, but but the churches here to interrupt you quickly think they're preaching Christ. I've said this before, but um, I think I do have somewhat of an interesting perspective because we did take a year and a half to finally land on a church here once moving back from England, mm. and even in England we were quite transient due to studies and whatnot that. We've ended up visiting a lot of churches, at least in a Western context, British and, and uh, American. Um, and you hear the name Jesus a lot, but there's, on number one, there's not a deep articulation of the nature and person of Christ. Mm. There's just kind of a superficial understanding of him as 
you know the classic, he died on the cross, so he loves you, so don't you want to give your life to him? Those are all true, very, very but shallow. there's no depth to that. There's yes. no deeper, uh, richer understanding of this, even something like union with Christ, yes. which is probably one of the most liberating things Realities, that yes. as a Christian you could come yeah. to understand. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, that's into it. Anyway, I'm rambling now, but that that's interesting. You say that it's consistent here in Egypt. It's uh, probably everywhere in the world is that. Um, I mean, what is what's the source of this problem? Is it the preacher's fault? Is it that the people aren't reading enough? Is it just nobody cares? I, I think the easiest thing for a preacher to do is to say do's and don'ts. This is the easy thing. It's it's easier. Again, this is my 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 perspective, or this is how I see it. It's easier for people to have lists. People want people want lists, and preachers sometimes they want to please the people. Okay, people are complaining. The preacher is not good. I, I did not understand. I did not. Now I'm leaving here. What shall I do? Like the the men who went to Christ. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I think this is the question inside many. Many of the people all over the world. So you think the the preachers are trying to answer that question versus what? What should they be doing? Versus what? Versus expositor preaching. Versus showing the people the redemptive history, the, the, the kingdom project that the Lord is doing through Christ and through the church. Showing them the big picture that they are part of and how this, how this should impact their everyday life. And instead of showing them what Christ has already done and what he's doing right now. So people are so much occupied with their own small life, who they are. And I'm not saying we're not about that, but they're so much occupied with that rather than seeing who God is and what, he's do, what he has done and what he's doing. Because the, who, is the, who is the hero of the scripture? It's not me. <laughs> like, yeah, bottom line, it's not me. From the from the beginning to the end, it's not me. I'm not, I'm not the hero. We are not the heroes. We are part, an important part of the picture. But God is the hero of it. God is doing something. And so, show me God. Show me who He is. Show me what He has done. Show me what He likes. Show me what He hates. Uh, show me how how He so loved the world. And how would you do this? Teach the Scripture. So. If you go to the Old Testament and, and you just preach stories of, of David and Moses and so forth so that this will be an example for us, this is miserable for me. Miserable. <laughs> but show me how this is related to Christ. Show me this is how related to Genesis 3.15. Show me how this is related to Christ and what, he's, what he has done and what he is doing right now. There's a very famous classic example I, I almost use every time I'm trying to teach the students about the Christ-centered preaching or the Christ-centered teaching, David and Goliath. Hmm. And I say, when you read this story in 1 Samuel, uh, who do you put yourself in the place of, in, in these characters? I, no one would put himself in the place of Goliath, right? And everyone would say, I'm David. And then you start to think, who is Goliath in my life? And how can I get the stones? What are the stones? And people usually put themselves in the place of David. I would love to be David. I'm tiny. My problems are bigger than me. And God will help me in the name of the Lord of hosts. 
I will beat my enemies. This is a horrible way of reading the story of David and Goliath. That's a great sermon, though. <laughs> That's a great sermon if you illustration. Think, if you think, if you think about who are we, and this, this is—I I did not invent this. Many, many preachers have said this. Who are we in this story? We are these Israelites who are standing there with an enemy way stronger than them that they can beat, they are afraid of, they are humiliated day after day. And then came a hero, a son of David, who came in their place representing them to beat this enemy and to slaughter him. And then what did they do after David slaughtered Goliath? They celebrated the victory. They became more than conquerors. This is how we should preach the scripture. Show me Christ. Mm. So, and this is very relevant, okay? Your enemy is stronger than you. Satan is stronger than you. He's, he can be humiliating you every day. What would you do? You would fight him yourself? He will destroy you. You, can't, you don't have the power. Look to David. Look to the son of David who, can, who, who already conquered him, who crushed his head and, and hide in him. Uh, so this is preaching Christ and it's relevant it's relevant to me so instead of thinking of what I should do I'm meditating I'm, I'm resting on what he has done mm. uh, I think if we are not preaching the scripture in this way we are we are putting lots of burdens on the back of the people a burden that they cannot carry like what Peter said one day that our fathers, they, they carried a burden that no one of them could ever carry. They, were not ju- they cannot be justified by trying to obey the law themselves in their own strength. And uh, it would be a misery if the preaching would put such a burden on the back of the people with, without showing them the one who said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and, um, and weary, and I will give you rest. So how do you answer people when they come to you and they say, let's say you've preached a sermon, well, let's, let's just say it was, it was a good expository sermon, meaning it, it was all about connecting the scriptures, demonstrating their, their coherence. It, it wasn't chock full of anecdotes of your family life. Um, it, was, it was a good sermon, and it, it exalted Christ. And um, and then someone comes up to you afterwards and says, "Thank you, Pastor. I feel like I I understand Jesus a bit better. But 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 what what am I supposed to do? <laughs> yes. Or or I would say, how is this related to my life? Yeah. How does this help me? You know, pay my my taxes. I see. Or, I see you know, my uh, my 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 daughter is special needs and it's just tearing our family apart like how does that help me look we have been talking a lot that some people may preach or may teach non-christocentered preaching and what would they do they would run rapidly to the application do and don't they just talk about the application they just preach the application so like the classic example someone's been giving a point from scripture, and then they start saying the maybes. Like, so maybe you're struggling with this, and maybe you're struggling with that. Like, is that what you're, that's yeah, what you're talking Yes, maybe you're struggling, and this like is what you should do. general maybes of... Or, or this is what you should do. Right, and then after that is like, so do this. Do this. 
So this is tendency. The other tendency that people may fall in when they hear about Christ-centered preaching, exorcistic preaching, this is what they would do. They would explain the historical context very well, very good commentary good style. background. Good yeah. background. They would explain this place in the redemptive history. They would show Christ and how this related to Christ. They give you a good biblical theology lecture. Lots of Greek and Hebrew words. <laughs> well, I would not go that far. <laughs> this would be two, two months. But then no application. They are not showing the relevance of this to the people. And I call this kind of preaching, this the other kind of preaching, the second one, is that it's a preacher who who brought all his audience to his kitchen and he showed them how he was how he made this meal all the details all the ingredients but he didn't give him he didn't give them a dish a plate full of food to eat and so preaching is wait 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 I, I like that analogy but what so then how does that analogy carry forward to the application sermon so it, it you should give them something to eat ready to eat you're right. not just taking it into the kitchen but if you don't give them if you're the cook who doesn't give them the final meal what's the one where you give them just application in the beginning yeah i think you would be giving them junk food <laughs> if i if i carry that illustration further this or you're giving them bad food or just bad food just just bad food because it's it, it, it's and maybe who knows the ingredients who knows the ingredients? It's just packaged food it's that just you packaged microwave. Food and, yes, okay. Some, something like that. But you you prepare a very good meal, good ingredients, yeah. the, 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 the wealth in it. But, but it doesn't land home. But but you have to give them something eatable. Eatable. Which means not just understandable, it's so, something that is relevant to their lives. Mm. And this was the beauty of the of the Puritans and um, Maastricht. I know you just, RHB just published the, the fourth volume. Maastricht has yeah. a great volume on uh, on preaching. Very small volume. And uh, he's saying that this you should do all these things. Uh, you should teach the context, teach uh, the, the biblical foundation, teach the doctrines. But a preacher without giving an application to the people, he's he's sending them away starving. Starving. Because people, the... Those who are working, those who are having troubles in their jobs, in their families, where there are special needs, children. How this is relevant to my everyday life. Okay, but there's too many There's too many people in your church. You can't address every single one. Of course. Of so course. at some point you have to be general. And sometimes you'll be selective. So yeah. let, let's say yeah. you're preaching again going to Ephesians. Because I, I, I am saying this because I've, I've just finished Ephesians. So how did you handle it this past Sunday? So last Sunday, I think, was more general. It was everyone because it was praying in your spiritual warfare. So I say everyone is in a special warfare, whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not. There's an enemy which is against you all the time. He hates you. He, he hates your family. He wants to destroy you. If, so you need to wear the full armor of God prayerfully without prayer, without supernatural help, help that is outside of yourself, you're in trouble. So this applies to everyone. I see. And yeah. the, but so, some texts are more challenging. So let's say you're preaching on men and women, Ephesians 5. You may have single people. You may have widows. You may have children. Well, I, I still, this is the word of God, and I'll preach the text. It applies to many people directly, married. Others may be, they would say, we wish we, ha we have heard this, early on, before we were divorced or before my spouse passed away. 
But again, they will see the beauty of the gospel. They, they will see the beauty of God's design. Mm-hmm. They may see their um, lacking, their weakness. They would ask for repentance. They would ask for forgiveness. And this can, get, can, um, can comfort their guilty conscience, their guilty souls. Um, yes, they are not fixing it right away. They are not fixing something practically, but there's something personal that has to do with them. Young people, they are learning. This, this is, what is what it means to be a husband. This is what it means to be a wife. Uh, this is what is it all about. But still, s- husbands and wife would be the greatest beneficiaries on this day, right? Uh, so I, I say there's a food for everyone in different levels. Uh, other days, it will be opposite. It will be different, something different. But does your, as a, as a preacher, does your application um, need to be so universal that it could be preached in Alexandria or in Los Angeles, you know, or in, in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, how context specific? So what I, the reason why I'm asking that question is because as you're talking, I'm thinking about, for example, let's take Marshall, who you've studied. And as you say, he's got this one sermon in the back. Yes, on justification. Um, the Puritans, just as a generalization, their sermons that we have recorded were like how context specific were they versus more universal in their application? And, and, and then this, the follow-on to that is, what can we take from them? Because some people would say, well, this was hundreds of years ago. Like, what relevance does this have today, besides kind of general theological principles? I think it's, there's a both end here. I would say there's nothing new under the sun, from one sense. So the human souls are the same. What Christ said about the two sons in Luke 15, the older son and the younger son, I can preach this anywhere all over the world. But when it comes to examples, when it comes to illustrations on what does this mean in our current life, I think the context will play a big, a big role. Mm-hmm. So yes, there is, in one sense, the principle is universal and it can, I can preach this anywhere. But I also say, no one would preach certain group of people like their indigenous preachers and teachers. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So here it helped me a lot to preach later, later on than what I preached early on. As I stayed with the people more, as I have understood them more, their struggles their examples, their jobs, the illustrations. This can f- can help, can feed into my, my sermon, my illustrations, my applications. Uh, early on, I would, I would say bad applications or something that is not relevant to them, something that, that I just bring from my, my context. But the more you stay with the people, the more you live with them, it will help. But this doesn't mean that you can't preach them at all. There's still some universal principles that you can say anywhere. You know, I, I have a friend who used to say this about Luther. He said, he said, if, um, if I'm going to preach anywhere all over the world and I don't know the people, I don't know the context, the first topic that I will choose is sin. 
to preach on. Because I know that everyone is stained with it, whether believers or non-believers. So if I'm in a room where murderers, where um, people who are going or promoting Pride Month, or whether I have Calvin or Luther in the room, I know that Calvin and Luther are sitting there, I will preach on sin. And it will touch everyone, I'm sure, at least. So this is universal, right? Yeah, but you may not get invited back. I mean, <laughs> you could have shown something else. Uh, yeah, but still, it's relevant. Mm -hmm. It is relevant. No one can say I'm without sin today. No one. So it, it will be relevant. Everyone needs to repent. Everyone needs Christ. Everyone needs God's mercy and grace every day. So it's relevant. And, and no matter what, how, how we are going to preach it, there are many ways to preach about sin. But preaching on sin is always safe, in a sense, in terms of relevancy. But back to the context, the illustrations that I give here in Grand Rapids are different from some, some, of, some of them are quite different from the illustrations I would give in, in Egypt. Hmm. I was just talking to a friend again today, and they said he, he's coming to, to Egypt and he said, if you, do you have any, uh, anything to tell me? I said, be careful of your illustrations. Don't use golf as part of your illustrations in Egypt. Why? It's a Western rich sport. Egyptians, maybe, what, what I can say, less than 1% less, less than were, were even aware of the existence of this sport. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you come and, and give illustrations about um, 9 or 18 and what is the difference, and, and we, we went further to, people will, we don't understand what you are talking about. But if you come to Egypt and talk about soccer, uh -huh. oh, you are at home. Everyone, <laughs> everyone will understand what you are saying. Uh, I think every church we visited over the past year and a half, at one point, from the pulpit, an illustration was made using the Detroit Lions, which I still don't understand it, except I, that they I have never no clue win. about what you are saying. <laughs> Seriously, if I heard this illustration, it, no, every time I hear it, I'm like, I just don't understand. Yes, and I'm, yes. maybe I should try better to learn. <laughs> so, but I, I, yeah, I get your point. Yes, yes, but still, there's some universal stuff that I can preach anywhere. Again, when it comes to men and women, uh, I would uh, preach this anywhere in the world. Yeah, about the headship, about submission, about the struggle of men, the selfishness of men, and about uh, the struggle with submission for women. I would preach this anywhere in the world, and I know that it will end. Hmm. It's universal. Of the books that you're taking with you to Egypt, uh, <laughs> which is a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you, you really. Well, I'm going to assume that a number of them are, um, are on Romans. Oh, yeah. And probably some historical theology, uh, given the nature of your work. Systematics more. More systematic. Just, I only say that because you mentioned you gave an acknowledgement to Adrian Neal for help with historical context, at least in yes, your yes, THM yes, thesis. Yes, 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 yes. But um, considering the name of this podcast, The Modern Puritan, yes. and kind of a lot of the material that we sell here at RHB, um, what, what, are some of the, what are some of the Puritan works that you're bringing with you and why? Uh, and have you had to leave anything, any of your, the Puritan works in particular behind just due to, you know, space constraints? Uh, I try to get 
the things that I really need, which which is about my interest, especially my interest. So I uh, I told you I I love uh, I love Owen, mm. and so I got his biblical theology. Do you have his entire works? It's it's a very, I don't have all of them, of course. Yeah. It was very hard to get all of them, and uh-huh. especially most of what he has written, I can access it online one way or another. Okay. This, this is a good thing of the Puritans, especially for someone like me in Egypt. Yeah. That most of the works are available online. Okay. If you, if you want to look at them. That was the question I was going to ask you. But it's like still... your accessibility to resources, I'm going to assume maybe less oh, yeah. than here. And because of transportation and, and bringing all these books back, if I can get the book as an ebook or if it's available as open source, okay. Mm hmm. Uh, but some books are not, and some books I would love to keep as uh, as hard copy. Yeah. So John Owen, biblical theology for me. This is I love biblical theology. So I I, I bought this volume. Uh, it's, maybe this is not uh, a Puritan, or it's, uh, it's it's at the same time Maastricht. The four volumes of Maastricht that you just made. I'm so thankful that volume four was just published before I left. So I just a copy. I got a copy today. And uh, to write a new volume on justification, I didn't read it yet, but I was so happy to see this being published before I leave, and I got this one. I love Turretin. I love his precision. Well, maybe my favorite systematician. Uh, so these are the things they have to do with what what I'm working on. Maastricht is is of course it's a, it's a great great work. Uh, yeah, what is it you love about Maastricht, and have you read much of? I, I read his work on, uh, uh, on on preaching very well. It's a small volume. Mm-hmm. I read some some of his work on theology proper early on, and uh, I'm so eager to to read the last volume, which is about salvation. I'm so eager to read this to 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 see what he what he says about it. I love his precision also, but I still I would uh, I would go to Turretin first and Baving before him, but I, I would use all of them. Uh, so Maastricht bringing his methodology also that he is uh, explaining the doctrine, doing some apologetics. At the end, he will bring the application. Uh, before that, of course, he's un- answering, yes, in the apologetics part, answering those who are against him. He's very organized, very clear, very organized, and uh, easy to follow, easy, easy to read, uh, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, Torreton's work on justification because I love to read about justification and to see how people were were teaching about justification. So Torreton, Torreton's volume is one of my to-read list, a small volume. Uh, these would be the, the on the top of my head the things that I I would love to to take back with me. Mm. Uh, Owen on biblical theology, Maastricht, Torreton. Yes. Let me ask you a question to wrap things up here, because I know we're getting late okay. on time, and I and uh, you probably have more packing to do. <laughs> so, but it's related to this question about books. Is um, is this why? And I, I want this question to be encouraging to to our listeners and also those um, who enjoy reading, or those maybe who have the question of. What should I read and why? And this is the question. You just mentioned an, a number of authors, Puritan and maybe not, 
why wouldn't you just buy Van Maastricht or like I did during my PhD, buy the two volumes of Owen's works mm. and say, I'm good with that. I'm going to just read Edwards, you know, once through and, uh, and that's good. I'll have, uh, you know, I, I'll have a very good articulation of various, um, theological doctrines and on and on. Why you said, you said a key phrase, you said, I love to read about justification, which is why volume four in, in uh, Van Maastricht appeals to you because of its emphasis on salvation. Mm. Why should, or should, maybe why should, or should they, why should Christians in particular be reading so many different voices, both old and new? You've even, we've talked about Athanasius in this conversation. Yes. Now we're going way back. You know, from the New Testament till today, we have all these articulations of, let's say, justification as an example. Why read so many of them? Why? What's what's the value? Like, ha, can't we just read Turretin and be happy? Okay, I would say first of all, what's the value to first, a Christian for that? First, first of all, there is there is wealth and there is warning. In terms, I will start with the warning. Yeah, explain that. I don't understand. When it comes to warning, no one, no one is infallible. Mm-hmm. No book is infallible. Only the Bible is infallible. So anyone can make mistakes. If you just follow certain person from A to Z, well, you are following his mistakes as well, his errors as well. I'm not saying that there are books, some books can be without error, if I may say. It can be, I'm not denying the, the, the hypothetical probability. Everything Joel Beakey's written, right? <laughs> Don't put me to the, in this <laughs> trap. Maybe we should edit that out. <laughs> so, no, I think he himself would agree that mm-hmm. no writer is infallible except the Bible. I, that's why we, we do criticism to these books. I can do book review and say positives and negatives, right? I can't I can do this with the Bible. I can't, do, I can't do a book review with the Bible and say, I like this part, but I didn't like this part. Or this was clear, this was not unclear. No, 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 you don't do this. But with any writer, I would say, this was good, really good. This is biblical. This is clear. Mm, mm-hmm. and this, no, this was this this was not clear enough, or this can be confusing, or this can lead to certain error, and um, and that's why we read these all the books with uh, appreciation, but with critical eyes. So this is the warning. This is this is this is the warning, and yeah. uh, and I th- Luther himself used this warning when he when he has been faced by the Roman Catholic Church regarding previous writers or what the church has said, the fathers, he said, guys, okay, I will follow what you're saying, but what what would you do when they contradict each other, when they say things which are different? Who would you follow? What would you do? And this was, I, I think this is an unanswerable question. How? What would you do? Mm. So sometimes you could read some of the Puritans and they would explain things differently or the emphasis is different. It's why we even had something like the marital controversy, right? Exactly. This is one of them. Both both groups adhered to the Westminster Confession. Yes. And yet they could not agree. Come to an agreement. Yes. Even in the Westminster Divines, in, in, in my book on, on, on Marshall, I, I can show you certain 
names in the Westminster Assembly, they disagreed on active obedience of Christ. Mm. So this is, what, this is the warning. The wealth is that uh, when you read different authors from different uh, uh, time eras or different contexts, there is richness there, there is wealth. Mm. Because you are seeing a bigger picture uh, from from different perspectives, different illustrations, you can you. So when when you read about justification, how how different theologians through history explain justification, where you see common things, and when you see different illustrations to explain the idea, to explain the principle, um, this uh, first of all it gives you more confidence in this truth. This is how I understand it. I'm not the first one to understand it. Other men throughout history understood it as I understand it, and they have explained it in ways that never crossed my mind. Mm. And this one one illustration will hit you more than the other. One illustration that will be more relevant to you, and you'll keep you'll keep talking to it or using it as you are explaining um, this illustration. I I got um, I got an example or I got an idea here, also, which has to do with the wealth and. Um, and the importance of reading others. I always say this in theology, our role as theologians or as preachers or teachers is a very, very humble role. We are taking what those who are before us have done or have have transmitted and we will take it and give it to those who are after us. Mm. So the apostles wrote it and they have delivered us to the church and the church, what is the church is doing? What are the teachers of the church are doing? They are taking these things and giving get to those who are after them. Sometimes people would write other things or would explain it in a certain way that can may cause confusion, errors. And then this theologian, what would they do? They would watch these errors and would say, be careful. No, this is not what we have delivered. This is what we have delivered. And they would explain it, explain it more. That's why when a theologian comes with a brand new idea, no one else said it before. And how would we know this? We have to read what have been said before. If he came with a brand new idea, I would be concerned. Why no one else saw it before you? The Lord left the church 2,000 years or 1,500 years with a new idea. And this takes us back to the, to the Puritans and to the Reformers. They did not invent a new Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They just went back to what the church has been saying again and again, and they corrected the deviation of the church Referring to the church fathers, if you read Calvin the Institutes, the amount of quotations from the church fathers is huge. This doesn't mean that he agreed with everything that they said. He disagreed with some things because they are fallible. But he was quoting them. He was affirming what he's saying from the scripture, using them. So it's, again, back to your question, why would we read all these men? There is wealth and there is assurance that we will have in our hearts that what we have learned has been said by saints throughout history. Uh, but again, there is warning as we are doing this that we do not limit ourselves to only one because we are, we are all fallible. We are, we, we, can, we are all prone to error, if I may say. Mm. And if I just follow one person all the way, I'm losing a lot and I can fall to the same error. It seems that your, your argument can be summarized in that one word, humility, that you mentioned many times. Yes. Towards both, right? Yes. A, you, you, we take a stance of humility because um, 
there there is error out there, and we need to humbly admit that. Yes, or in humility admit that we are in we are fallible. Um, but humility also towards the wealth and realizing that we need to be need constantly them. reminded. Yes, and not just reminded, but actually kind of like with working out, like if you don't do anything with your body, maybe you'll like, you should not expect to be stronger, more fit, healthier. Yes. You'll just be kind of at this place of stasis. Yes. But if we're humble about the fact that we need to continue uh, expanding our understanding Mm. of Christ and this history of redemption, what should we do? We should read, not only read, but yeah. Yes, and even study their uh, the writings. There's, there's sometimes it amazes me the insights that I can uh, I can read in uh, in these books. How mm. the Lord has used these men with all these gifts, and you praise God. And I guess too, as a as a preacher, um, look at look at, read their sermons and learn oh, yeah. how to structure a sermon. <laughs> how to use hopefully more timeless anecdotes and illustrations that will carry forth to the next generation Yes, and really stick with people and help articulate um, this great faith that we live yes. in yes. and through. Yes. Yes. Hey, man, uh, I'm really sad. This is the last... <laughs> You're not going to be able knows? to do this for a while. Who knows? Because yeah. um, we do like to do these in person, so I would... Maybe we can do one uh, when you're in Egypt, just online. But I much prefer to have you in the room. Yes, I th- face-to-face is different. Yeah, yes, this has yes. been good. Thank you so much for this time. I really enjoyed this, as usual. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to miss you. And I don't even know you as well as a lot of the people at your church do. But um, we'll keep we'll keep you in prayer. Yes, I appreciate and, um, that. Yeah, so just so that... Those watching, because the vast majority of our audience is based in the U.S., is how can people, once again, find you, but also if they want to donate to your ministry, to the publishing work that you're doing in Egypt, or even if if they want to come to you as a source for other missions work that's happening in Egypt, or just even just to say hi, what? Where can they go? I think Twitter would be a good place to go. My my Twitter account. What's uh, your handle? Sharif. I think it's Sharif Ifahim. Yeah, we'll put it I in the description. Ask, it's you, okay. You asked me. You asked me this last time. It's embarrassing that I still don't realize what is this. <laughs> Who remembers their Twitter handle anymore? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I think it will be easily found. Hopefully, there is no many Sharif uh, Fahims. Are you posting much on Twitter? Uh, maybe. Once a week, once every two weeks. And it's in English. It's sometimes English, sometimes Arabic. Oh, good. So okay. when you see it in Arabic, you can say translate. Yeah. It, and it will get you maybe 80, 90% of what it says. Okay. Yes. Sometimes I do it in Arabic, yes. Okay. So it's in Arabic. I think t- Twitter would be a, g- a good place to go and uh, people can uh, DM or send direct messages. And what about the, it's El Sura? El Sura, yes. El Sura is the, is the website, elsura.org. El Sura Ministries. El Sura Ministries. El Sura.org. El Sura.org, okay. this is the website where people can find plenty of uh, Arabic-speaking resources or uh, Arabic resources. 
So like if they have a neighbor here in the U.S.? Yes, this or... is, uh, I would say this is a good, reformed, it's, you, you can trust this place. Okay. It's uh, all, all of the material there are solid, reformed uh, material in Arabic. Mm-hmm. And um, people can, um, can use them or can forward them to Arabic-speaking people. Okay. Uh, so, okay. Yes. Thanks, Sharif. Thank you, Tim. So yeah. Much. Thanks, everyone.